This episode of the podcast was filmed just two weeks before the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine. Unfortunately, some of the content has turned out to be quite prescient. The following is a conversation with Ankit Panda, who is the Stanton Senior Fellow in the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Ankit is an expert in the Asia-Pacific region, focusing on nuclear strategy, arms control, emerging technologies, and US extended deterrence. He's also consulted for the United Nations and testified before the congressionally chartered US-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Ankit is also an award-winning author, and he hosts a fantastic podcast on Asian geopolitics, which I can highly recommend. Links below. Here we discuss the impact of mutually assured destruction on conflict and peace, as well as the impact that Russian incursions into Ukraine may have on nuclear proliferation. We discuss the domestic and geopolitical nuclear strategy of countries like North Korea, as well as their capabilities. Is Russian estrangement from the EU and the world of strategic benefit to the US, or is it an unwelcome distraction from US focus on China and their interest in the Asia-Pacific region? We also cover US strategic insolvency in the face of rising Asian power, new economic challenges, as well as the emergence of new military technologies like drones, artificial intelligence, and hypersonic missiles. The content of the discussion is fairly heavy given the current circumstances, but I hope you find it clarifying. Escaped Sapiens. So today what I want to do, what I hope to do, is get a better idea for how politics uh, interacts with science and technology, how, how they influence one another. And I suppose the most obvious connection between the two is through military technology. And so that's where I'm primarily going to focus. And I thought I'd start with a big question. And so to what extent does mutually assured destruction uh, to what extent is it the main thing that keeps peace in the world today between um, major powers? Or, or do other factors like economics and, and trade connections play more of a role uh, today? Yeah, so I mean, you're asking a pretty fundamental question uh, in the field of international security. Uh, this is one that I think honest people disagree about in good faith. Um, I have my own views on this matter. Um, mutually assured destruction, of course, is, I think, a popular manifestation of how I think people presumed that nuclear strategy worked, primarily during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. The unfortunate thing about mutually assured destruction is that it never really existed uh, in, the, in, the, in the popular sense, right? There's a sort of neat sort of layman's version of the Cold War, which was that the United States and the Soviet Union had tens of thousands of nuclear weapons, and, and that part is true. Um, and that by the possession of these nuclear weapons, there was this very stable relationship and mutual recognition that any use of these weapons would manifest in the end of civilization and total destruction. And so therefore, these weapons were not usable. And so peace persisted at a strategic level throughout the Cold War. Of course, you know, we had the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So I'm not implying that the Cold War was universally peaceful because that can be a myopic sort of superpower perspective. Uh, but the reason I I don't think mutually assured destruction really existed in that neat sort of theorized form um, is because neither country, the United States nor the Soviet Union, ever accepted vulnerability, right? So we can get into sort of the fundamentals of nuclear strategy and the, and the basis for how nuclear deterrence is supposed to work in practice. Um, but look, I mean, throughout the Cold War, uh, each side sought to gain advantage. Uh, it's just not in the DNA of strategic cultures in national militaries and defense establishments to live with vulnerability to one's adversary. And and deterrence thrives when vulnerability is accepted. Uh, that's sort of the, mm -hmm. the one of the requirements, right? When if 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 you and I, and you know, 
we're friendly, but you know, let's imagine we weren't friendly and and we had a uh, dispute. Um, and I wanted to deter you from taking action against me, and you wanted to deter me from taking action against your interests. Um, the ability to credibly threaten each, you know, uh, to threaten the other one with costs uh, is an important part of that. And, and if I accept that you can threaten me with costs that I deem unacceptable and, and you deem the same, neither of us is likely to take action. And so that's the mutually assured destruction that really never manifested. It was sort of, it was an aspiration. Uh, there were there were talks on arms control and strategic stability during the Cold War where national leaders recognized this, um, you know, I'll, one example that I think is always quite interesting is that in the late 1960s, uh, Robert McNamara, um, U.S. Defense Secretary, you know, would give give speeches in Washington about why he thought the Soviet Union needed to enhance the survivability of its nuclear forces. And this sort of <laughs> really seemed absurd to a lot of people in Washington. But, you know, McNamara was sort of coming at this from the perspective of, well, look, if the Soviets don't make these changes and their forces are too vulnerable to our attack— that's fundamentally going to be destabilizing because in a crisis, the Soviets might then feel overwhelming incentives to launch their capabilities first, lest they lose them in a U.S. first strike. So I'll stop there. But, you know, there's a lot there's a lot to dig into here. I mean, this is pretty much one of the fundamental questions that continues to divide the field. You're you're sort of on one side or the other uh, on the issue of does nuclear deterrence work and, and does it preserve peace? In in practice, did the states ever step back its capabilities for those reasons? Um. So yeah, I mean, you know, arms control did manifest eventually during the Cold War. Um, it it wasn't this unbridled, uh, unlimited competition. Um, but of course, arms control doesn't just help avert war. Uh, it also minimizes the consequences of a war should it occur, should deterrence fail, uh, which has its own um, benefits. Um, fortunately, deterrence never failed during the Cold War because I think the costs of a Cold War nuclear conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union would have been um, basically civilization ending. Um, and the other purpose of arms control is minimizing the costs of peacetime competition. And this one, I think, actually has the most practical value in terms of real world um, budgetary politics, right? Strategy mm -hmm. is reasoning about means and ends. And uh, if you have unlimited ends, uh, you're not going to have limitless means to achieve those ends. And so um, both countries saw value in arms control uh, for these reasons. And so we didn't end up in this scenario where the unlimited pursuit of capability to seek absolute advantage um, basically, you know, led to the demise of either society. Although, I mean, you know, people still make the uh, the argument, which I think is is fairly well supported, that at least on, in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, uh, continued spending on on nuclear weapons capabilities was a contributor to overall economic malaise and eventually the collapse of the mm. Soviet Union. Which you know I don't want to oversimplify; it had many causes, but that was certainly one of them. Yeah, so so I suppose um, what you're saying in in sort of a condensed version is the situation was always dynamic. It was never this static sort of we have these capabilities and we're forever going to remain peaceful because you know we can assure destruction upon one another, right? It's uh, th there was always someone developing new weapons, new capabilities, and and that's the main stick in the uh, in the ointment, right? Yeah, I mean, offense and defense, it's that it's that never-ending cat-and-mouse game. It's what Paul Warnke called, you know, apes on a treadmill, uh, the arms race, uh, in effect, uh, right? The minute, um, I mean, look, for instance, you know, I, I know you've talked about space security issues on this podcast before, and uh, what's interesting is that, 
you know, pretty much in the weeks after uh, the Soviet launch of the Sputnik satellite, the first man-made satellite to orbit Earth, uh, the United States immediately began thinking about ways to shoot down satellites, right? The moment, the moment um, an adversary is perceived to gain advantage, uh, immediately there's uh, a lot of thinking, a lot of spending on counter capabilities. And so arms control is one of the ways to sort of get the apes to sort of step off that proverbial treadmill. Um, but otherwise, uh, really, there's there's no solution here, right? Yeah, we might we might theorize about stable deterrence and mutually assured destruction and the nuclear revolution, um, but all of this has in practice everywhere. I mean, this is not just the U.S. and the Soviet Union. You know, you see this with India and Pakistan. You see this with North Korea and South Korea. South Korea isn't even a nuclear weapon state, but but you see similar dynamics. I mean, this idea that um, adversarial relationships can be stabilized um, simply because, you know, purely rational beings uh, will recognize the costs of, of, com of competing uh, in an unlimited fashion. Uh, that just doesn't manifest in practice. So on the, on the subject of North Korea, then, you know, it's, it's obvious that North Korea is not in a, it doesn't have the uh, capabilities to destroy America. So there's not this uh, mutually, it's definitely not mutually assured destruction here at play. So, so for countries like Iran, North Korea, how does the acquisition of nuclear weapons fit into the national strategies? What, what does it allow them to do? What does it allow their leaders to do politically, both domestically and externally? Yeah, so... You know, the point you actually raise is an important one in terms of breaking down mutually assured destruction, right? The, what I would actually say existed during the Cold War was mutually unacceptable damage or mud, <laughs> uh, not quite mad, right? Uh, I, I mean, look, the, the, the doctrines that the United States and the Soviet Union relied on, uh, right, at the highest ends of a nuclear conflict, it wasn't that we were going to totally um, wipe out Soviet civilization and target nuclear weapons in such a way that every citizen of the Soviet Union would be vaporized. It was it was about, you know, I mean, in the nuclear jargon, you have these targeting approaches of counterforce and counter-value. Counterforce being targeting the adversary's military capabilities and nuclear forces such that they can't be used against you. So to limit damage against yourself, you sort of, you know, attack the adversary. This approach is generally seen as in line with the laws of war, the International Court of Justice has effectively said that nuclear deterrence of this form uh, can be legally practiced. And so this is the basis of how the U.S., which does say that its nuclear war plans adhere to the law of war, practically plans for nuclear conflicts today. Right. The U.S. today does not target cities uh, like mm -hmm. that is that is not a lawful way to conduct a nuclear war. And I mean, I mean you know, for a lot of people that aren't st steeped in these issues. The whole notion of legally fighting a nuclear war can be very uncomfortable. But I mean, these are real things that, you know, military lawyers uh, and, and policymakers think about. Uh, so unacceptable damage during the Cold War uh, or, you know, assured destruction, however you want to talk about it. Um, on the counter value side, i.e. targeting the adversary's economic center, population and other sources of value, um, it was basically around the idea of, well, we'll take out 25% of their population, right? If you've seen Dr. Strangelove, this is the uh, the classic, you know, Buck uh, Turgidson, you know, well, we're, you know, we're going to get our hair must a little bit. 25% uh, of the population, maybe we can live with that, right? Anyways, this is all very bleak stuff. But, but this notion of un uh, unacceptable damage is, I think, fundamentally important to what you're asking about, which is what do smaller states like North Korea, uh, which, you know, I mean, 
it's it's actually remarkable where North Koreans come now, right? I mean, Richard Nixon once described this country as a fourth-rate pipsqueak, and uh, you know, earlier this month I was on calls with reporters talking about North Korea's new hypersonic gliding weapons and uh, <laughs> and so forth. So you know, things things have changed, but. Nuclear weapons have dramatic effects, right? We we all intuitively understand this, even even if you know things like blast overpressure and you know air bursts and ground bursts aren't necessarily uh, necessary for the average person to understand that a nuclear detonation anywhere in the United States would be a very bad day, um, even even if it doesn't result in assured destruction. And so this is really the basis for the smaller states, right? I mean, North Korea has, you know, GDP estimates for North Korea are very imprecise, but basically North Korea's total GDP in 2022 is on the order of what the U.S. maybe spends on a couple aircraft carriers, Mm -hmm. right? But they have nuclear weapons, and our GDP is in the tens of trillions, and any American president is going to think twice, three times, four times, five times before taking military action to either kill Kim Jong-un or to otherwise degrade North Korea's nuclear forces because the North Koreans in 2017, for the first time, demonstrated the ability to range all 48 of the continental United States um, with nuclear weapons, right? So even a single nuclear detonation over Manhattan, over Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, San Diego is something that an American president has to consider. Um, And, you know, I mean, you could... You could talk about the fact that, well, you know, North Korean missiles aren't reliable, so maybe they only arrive at their targets 50% of the time. We have a missile defense system that's about 50% effective. But even if you still, you know, you you sort of boil together all those probabilities and you sort of take the expected value mm-hmm. of an American president undertaking an attack on North Korea and failing to destroy every single one of North Korea's nuclear weapons, the North Koreans get one off. And because the casualties and the damage associated with a nuclear conflict are so high, that's still a very, very costly expected value of, of sort of going to war. I'm not saying that, you know, American presidents are perfect Bayesians who sort of think about conflict and crisis in this way. Uh, but I think their advisors and military planners, you know, do consider this, right? This is now a practical planning mm-hmm. consideration for U.S. military operations on the Korean Peninsula. So this country that was once a fourth-rate pipsqueak um, now finds itself in a nuclear deterrence relationship with the United States. And this is, you know, this is this is me telling you this. I mean, this is not the basis of American policy, right? Um, mm-hmm. Joe Biden does not believe that we are in a nuclear deterrence relationship with North Korea. Uh, and, and this is a problem, right? I think I think it's important to be realistic about these things. Um, we're still, for the last 30 years, our frame for North Korea policy has been non-proliferation, right? That mm-hmm. North Korea is the horse that ran out of the barn, and we're going to put it back in the barn. And I'm sorry, but that's probably not happening in my lifetime. Um, and I'm still pretty early in my career, so hopefully, you know, that's that's going to be a good few years. Um, and so, not dealing with the issues that arise as a result of this deterrence relationship, mm-hmm. uh, I think, creates a bunch of risks, right? If we if, if we don't treat the North Koreans seriously and we don't treat their capabilities seriously, uh, in a crisis, I think there's a lot of room uh, to sort of miscalculate. And this is sort of the fundamental. Uh, theme that goes into a lot of the work that I do, which is, um, you know, I'm not I'm not a disarmament activist. I'm not a nuclear deterrence theorist. I'm really concerned with nuclear escalation and avoiding the use of these weapons. Right? It's that incredibly low probability, high consequence event um, that primarily motivates a lot of what I do. So, what do you think? Do you think it was a good thing then that uh, Trump went forward and spoke directly with uh, Kim Jong Un, or do you think that was a, a strategic misstep? Or what, what's your uh, opinion of, of that change? Also, well, so, you know, I, I think Trump 
went to Singapore for the wrong reasons, right? I don't think for a minute that he was interested in disarmament or non-proliferation. Um, I think it was, you know, the classic ratings play. Uh, it was it got good ratings, right? It was it was the it was the biggest story in the world when it happened. Everybody was talking about it. But practically, uh, the only effect, the only good thing that came out of a, um, out of that process, and really, you can't really attribute this to tr Trump, right? I think South Korean President Moon Jae-in, uh, the progressive leader in South Korea, who very much reciprocated North Korean overtures, um, has a lot. You know, I think he gets a lot of the credit here too. Uh, but the effect that it had was that it sort of de-escalated the crisis that had really started to get to a dangerous place by the end of 2017. 2017 was the year when Trump sort of, it was this uniquely dangerous year because I think when new nuclear states are crossing important qualitative developmental thresholds like North Korea in 2017 when they demonstrated a thermonuclear weapon and an ICBM capability, an intercontinental range ballistic missile capability for the first time, uh, you know, we we just so happened to have Donald Trump in his first year of the presidency. Mm. And of course, he was not interested in traditional processes and national security planning and would threaten North Korea with fire and fury, tell Rocket Man that he's about to, you know, die at the United Nations General Assembly and so forth. Uh, and so the positive effect that came out of that process was that it sort of pulled a lot of that air out uh, from the crisis that had begun to balloon in 2017. Mm. Um, but, you know, here we are in 2022. Um, not a single uranium enrichment centrifuge has stopped spinning in North Korea. They've restarted their reactor. They're reprocessing plutonium. They're testing hypersonic glide vehicles and other new advanced delivery systems for their nuclear weapons. They're mooting tactical nuclear weapons. I mean, it's just, you know, all of that. I mean, the reason I'm sort of going into that level of detail is to really emphasize that this isn't the non-proliferation problem that we were dealing with in the 1990s when, mm -hmm. you know, the Clinton administration, to its credit, shut down North Korea's only source of plutonium. And that had the benefit of sort of kicking this can down the road. But for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons, we're in this predicament now with North Korea. So what are the, if you're going to be quantitative, what are the capabilities so so we know they have uh hypersonic missiles and then we know they have nuclear weapons but is it they have 10 they have a hundred what, what does it what does that picture look like in terms of the numbers yeah and you know so you know you're a scientist so you're comfortable with uncertainties and i and i usually like to talk about these things with significant error bars because we just don't know for sure uh the numerical contours of North Korea's forces, which are changing. I mean, every 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 month, North Korea is creating more fissile material, potentially manufacturing another warhead. Um, so the basic numbers that I usually like to work with are that the North Koreans probably have manufactured on the order of 40 to 60 nuclear weapons. I would mm -hmm. say most of those are fission bombs with a yield of around 30 kilotons. That's roughly twice um, the explosive yield of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Um, and the remainder are higher yield, much higher yield uh, thermonuclear weapons on the order of maybe 250 to 400 kilotons uh, okay. in explosive yield, which is significant. Mm -hmm. um, so 40 to 60. Um, and on the side of delivery systems, the longer range. So with delivery systems, you're not just talking about missiles. You're talking about launchers for missiles. Uh, so launchers. So this is actually one of the paradoxical or not paradoxical, but sort of counterintuitive observations that I think a lot of people find surprising with North Korea and other proliferators, which is that it's actually much more difficult uh, for a country to build a very heavy truck, a very large truck to carry a missile than to build a missile itself. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, look, we're, we're we're pretty well into the space age where. You know, 
orbital and suborbital launches are fairly well understood. Um, liquid propellants, energetic liquid propellants for, for rockets are early 20th century chemistry. The North Koreans produce all of that indigenously. Um, but it actually turns out having a reliable transmission and engine system and, you know, wheel axles for a very large launcher, road mobile launcher capable of launching ICBMs is very difficult. Uh, all right, the North Koreans aren't going to do silos because silos would be incredibly vulnerable to U.S. conventional and nuclear attacks. So their entire land-based delivery system array is all road mobile. So they have these trucks that drive around the country with missiles. Um, and so... What I'm getting at is that when it comes to ICBMs, the missiles capable of, you know, hitting me here in Washington, D.C. And, and New York City and Los Angeles, Mar-a-Lago, Florida, wherever, um, they have around, I would say, probably four to eight, um, depends on how many are actually likely to be deployed in a crisis. Um, the big problem, though, and this is the one that I think Americans think less about, but certainly South Korea and Japan think a lot about, is that they have on the order of um, more than a couple hundred. Um, launchers capable of delivering or launching missiles capable of nuclear delivery to targets in uh, Japan and South Korea. And then they have sort of 30 launchers that are capable of carrying what are known as intermediate range missiles. These are missiles in the U.S. Department of Defense taxonomy that range between 3,000 and 5,500 kilometers. Uh, and the reason that that range is particularly significant to North Korea is because 3,000 to 5,500 is what gets you Guam. Uh, and Guam mm -hmm. is something that a lot of Americans don't think about too much, but it's a U.S. Pacific territory that hosts, among other facilities, uh, Anderson Air Force Base, which is where the U.S. Air Force um, conducts many of its bomber operations uh, in, in the Pacific region that the North Koreans particularly dislike. So Guam is an important target for them. So they have, you know, 30-ish launchers capable of ranging Guam, uh, and they've, and they've um, you know, demonstrated um, a, a delivery capability uh, in, in practical terms. So it's uh, it's not the kind of crisis that we it's it's a very new problem for American military planners. Right. In uh, you know, 2017 was this important year uh, because it was uh, 46 years since China um, in 1972 or 1971 uh, demonstrated its first um, intercontinental range ballistic missile capable of ranging the U.S. And so that might have been, you know, the 70s and 80s were when U.S. military planners were sort of coming to grips with the fact that they now had two nuclear adversaries to worry about, China being mm -hmm. a much smaller problem. And then in 2017 and now towards 2022 into the future, um, the U.S. is slowly adapting to what it means to have three nuclear adversaries. And what's interesting about the China-North Korea parallel is that a lot of the ways in which, you know, American officials in the 60s and 70s uh, used to talk about Mao's bomb. Uh, and so, you know, is Mao rational? Can he be trusted? What does it mean that China now has a small nuclear arsenal? Uh, a lot of those very same debates are playing out with North Korea, uh, which I which I find pretty fascinating. Do you think from the perspective of North Korea, it's sensible to have these uh, weapons? I mean, is it understandable from from your perspective? So look, I mean, I think answering that question depends, you know, it depends on whether you accept the frame of North Korea's political system and regime, right? They're effectively a Marxist-Leninist monarchy, uh, really a unique polity. They have outlasted the Soviet <laughs> Union. They've been around longer than the People's Republic of China. If anything, they're survivors, um, right? They're on the third generation of a familial line of succession with Kim Jong-un inheriting from his father, Kim Jong-il, who inherited from his father, Kim Il-sung, the leadership of this country. And, you know, Kim Jong-un, like me, is a millennial. He's fairly young. Uh, he's lost a little weight recently, but he's not the healthiest guy. But I expect, like every other millennial, he wants to uh, 
live a long life and grow old. And uh, he wants to remain in power because he has it pretty good. Uh, you know, luxury goods and, uh, you know, ski resorts and, and all kinds of things uh, that he enjoys. Um, and nuclear weapons basically are the ultimate form of assuring that in the long term, right? It's actually less about the survival of the country, right? Because if we, uh, you know, it, I, I think for Westerners, there's often this sort of idea that we're going to, you know, Donald Trump did this in the Singapore summit where he sort of showed Kim Jong-un a video that was like, you know, a capitalist North Korea with McDonald's and all of these private businesses, you know, fast fashion brands, shopping malls. Um, and, you know, as Westerners intuitively, we're like, capitalism is great. You have all these benefits, you know, why don't you just give up your nuclear weapons and give your people prosperity and enter the enter the modernized globalized world. Um, and suggesting that to North Korea is as good as suggesting regime change, right? In, in that scenario where North Korea has been transformed into basically South Korea, um, Kim Jong-un is no longer the head honcho with this absurd amount of absolute power that he enjoys. Uh, and so that's a very difficult kind of, I think, thing for a lot of people to grok, that the North Koreans are never going to accept that. Uh, and and so it's not just regime security, it's Kim Jong-un's personal security. And the North Koreans repeatedly talk about Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi, uh, you know, what the fates that befell them after uh, engaging with the United States in good faith on, on nuclear disarmament. Um, and so they basically see no reason to give up their nuclear weapons. Uh, and so, you know, the U.S. is sort of paying some of the costs of our, I think, not so forward looking policy uh, with Iraq and Libya. Um, but, you know, what is interesting to me also is that, you know, people talk about other examples uh, in, in disarmament, right? Like the South Africans were the only country to have mm -hmm. manufactured nuclear weapons and given them up, albeit with South Africa, it was basically under regime change conditions, the end of apartheid. Um, and, and the Ukraine example, which I don't think has many um, parallels with what the North Koreans, uh, you know, experience. But so, but so that's the basic thing, right? I think the North Koreans are never going to give up these capabilities as long as Kim Jong-un is in power. I don't want to say never, you know, I, I don't ever want to say never. I also don't want to bet on North Korean collapse. This was a very popular thing in the mid-1990s when after the Cold War ended and the North Koreans lost their Soviet patronage. Uh, there was this big concern, especially after Kim Il-sung died in 1994. He'd been the only leader of North Korea uh, since the country's founding in 1948, um, that North Korea would collapse. And, and like I said, they have pulled through famines. They have pulled through major crises with the United States. Uh, they just continue to survive. And of course, when I say they, I mean, I'm really talking about Kim Jong-un and about a small coterie of around 50,000 or so Workers' Party of Korea elites, right? North Korea is a country of 24, 25 million people mm -hmm. and... The fates of most of those people are pretty grim. Uh, and so and so that is one of the tragedies is that North Korea's nuclear possession is very good for one man and and the people that he allows to um, share the halls of power with him to an extent. Um, but, you know, it's it's uh, I think it's a tragedy for regional security. It's a tragedy for the people of North Korea. And because of the possession of nuclear weapons by North Korea, I think our ability to influence what happens inside North Korea is just going to be fundamentally more limited than it's ever been in the past. On the topic of Ukraine, so they used to be the they used to have the world's third largest uh, nuclear arsenal, and they gave it up on the assurance from the UK and the US and Russia that uh, they would have security. Right, that these nations were going to you know, protect their um, sovereignty. I guess. What do you think the impact of the recent incursions by Russia? You know, uh, the crime 
you know, annexing Crimea and also these incursions in, in the eastern provinces. What, what do you think the influence of, of this sort of a crisis has on, on nu- nuclear proliferation uh, more broadly? Yeah, so the Budapest Memorandum, I think, is is popularly misunderstood. And I've seen a lot of this, obviously, in the context of the of the late 2021, early 2022 crisis in Europe. Um, Ukraine did have physically on its territory fissile material and delivery systems comprising the third largest nuclear arsenal if they could use it. Right. A nuclear delivery system and fissile material is is no good to you if you don't exercise command and control over those forces. And the Ukrainians never did. Uh, right. The the sort of cryptological basis for accessing those weapons was still held by the Russian Federation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this idea that the Ukrainians um, sort of entered this bargain where they would give up a nuclear arsenal that they controlled in exchange for security guarantees. It's just not what happened. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that that sort of is, is a pretty important detail uh, because mm-hmm. I think it, I think it, you know, if, if the Ukrainians did control those weapons and they gave those up, I think that would be the most remarkable uh, gesture of disarmament in, in world history. Right. And, and that's just not what the case was. The Ukrainians knew that, you know, the Ukrainians had a choice, right? I mean, they might have, they could have spent the resources to decrypt, uh, either either decrypt whatever command and control the Soviet Union had implemented in hopes to gain control of those weapons. They could have physically cracked open the weapons to extract the fissile material and and remachine it for use in new nuclear weapons design, which would basically would have required Ukraine setting up its own nuclear research and development complex. Um, you know, the Ukrainians still have a very robust space launch and, and missile industry, so uh, delivery systems wouldn't have been a problem for Ukraine uh, as much. But but this idea that they would have simply turned the key and, and become a nuclear power if they hadn't trusted these security guarantees just wasn't true. And, and look, in the aftermath of the Cold War, you're a newly independent post-Soviet state. You could either go down this very uncertain path and uh, really set yourself up as a pariah state against uh, you know, the then new Russian Federation and United States, both of whom would probably oppose you doing that. Or you can take the Budapest Memorandum deal, enter Europe's new security order, and hope that those security guarantees mean something on paper. Uh, which unfortunately in 2022 has turned out to really not be the case. Uh, and so it wasn't really the kind of, I think, proposition that it's commonly presented as. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, that's sort of my view on uh, the Budapest Memorandum in Ukraine. So what what were their capabilities? Could they have, is, were the, was the extent that they could have made a dirty bomb or is that all they could have done in the short term? Yeah, I mean, a, a dirty bomb is basically uh, taking uh, highly radioactive material, including fission byproducts, and sticking that with some conventional explosives and hoping that you disperse. Uh, you know, uh, a dirty bomb is more technically called a radiological dispersal device. So just taking uh, radiological materials and dispersing them. Um, yeah, I mean, the Ukrainians could have done that. That was sort of a big concern in the 2000s with sort of terrorist groups getting access to, um, you know, medical isotopes and, and other radiological materials mm-hmm. and using those in a dirty bomb. Um, but a dirty bomb wouldn't have uh, anywhere near the same kind of uh, deterrence effects that uh, full yield uh, nuclear weapons would. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty, I think, significant uh, distinction in terms of the military utility. Mm-hmm. So in terms of if we go back to the Korean Peninsula, what would be the ideal uh, outcome for the United States, but also for Russia and China? I know these are very different pitches, but what, what do people actually want if, if they get their wishes? I mean, so, you know, as a matter of policy, I think all of these countries still want 
uh, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, right? A Korean Peninsula free of nuclear weapons. Um, that is the policy of the United States, of Russia, of China. Um, it's a little absurd at this point because basically everybody, you know, you, you can pull the publics, you can pull, uh, you know, people like me who work on these issues. Basically, the overwhelming consensus is that North Korea is not going to give up its nuclear weapons anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So there's this huge disconnect, right? But like, if we if we dig deeper. I think the U.S. is starting to get to a point where basically they don't want the North Koreans to become a major headache, right? Um, mm-hmm. The way I talk about this is, you know, we've lost with North Korea. No, no American president is going to admit this, but we've lost. 30 years of policy have failed pretty spectacularly. Uh, and now, you know, if the North Koreans don't pipe up too much, if they don't saber rattle with South Korea or Japan, uh, which the U.S. is treaty bound to defend— and they sort of just generally, you know, stay quiet and do their own thing. The U.S. can probably live with that. Um, doesn't seem like that's what the North Koreans are going for, right? They, they they fundamentally want their nuclear weapons to compel the United States into this new type of coexistence where uh, basically we admit that we failed and we we give them sanctions relief, right? The North Koreans are under tremendous economic sanctions on the multilateral mm-hmm. level for the, at the U.N. Security Council across 11 resolutions between uh, 2006 and 2017. And so rolling back those sanctions, um, which would allow the North Koreans to pursue economic development on their own terms, right? So not the McDonald's and shopping malls vision of Donald Trump, but Kim Jong-un's own version of sort of um, not reform and opening up like China or Vietnam experience, but really, you know, developing with North Korean characteristics, basically industrial policy on a large scale. Um, and, And that's the hope. I think for China, the set of incentives that underpin the sort of surface interest in denuclearization is primarily stability. You know, the Chinese don't Mm -hmm. want the North Koreans to collapse. They don't want refugees uh, flowing over the border into China. They don't want a military coup. They don't want a nuclear accident. Uh, So these are, you know, I think, interesting concerns for China because, you know, when you have a neighbor like that, uh, a a North Korean Chernobyl uh, with, you know, massive radiological dispersal into northern China would be a nightmare. Uh, so it's actually interesting, like the People's Liberation Army in China um, has been observed conducting exercises that, you know, make use of facilities that resemble facilities in North Korea. Uh, and so they have their contingencies, right? Um, the China-North Korea relationship is fascinating. It's it's really complex. It really gets flattened out in a lot of the contemporary debates that happen in the West, where the notion is that they're sort of shoulder-to-shoulder allies that disagree on very little. But they there's a tremendous amount of mistrust. In fact, I'd say if there's anything that's sort of hardwired into North Korea's strategic DNA, it's just a chronic, chronic mistrust of basically every other actor in the international system, be that a nation state, be that an international institution. Um, you know, I don't want to get too much into international relations theory, but North Korea is probably the sort of prototypical um, neo-realist state. That, you know, mm-hmm. international relations theories, I think, do a decent job of explaining state behavior, but not a great job in reality because, you know, humans are fallible and there's a lot of emotion and psychology that affects state de- uh, decision making. Uh, but the ways in which the North Koreans act uh, with regard to even their closest partners, uh, I think, really uh, underscores a very sort of anarchic view of the world, that the world is a dangerous, brutish, you know, brutish, you know, life in the international system is nasty, brutish and short if you don't do uh, whatever it takes to assure your own survival, uh, building nuclear weapons, cyber weapons, using chemical weapons to assassinate your half brother in Kuala Lumpur International Airport, uh, which did happen in, in February 2017. Um, so it's this really, I think, um, unique view of the world. Um, and I think, again, failing to understand this, I think also impinges on our ability to, to successfully deal with the North Koreans.
Hmm. From that perspective, it really does make sense that you'd invest money in nuclear weapons. It, it's it sounds sensible almost. <laughs> it's uh, so. What would be the so we haven't spoken about Russian yet, but but um, what would be the downside for China if there was reunification along South Korea's uh, lines? Um, I mean, you know, I think. China would prefer a Korean Peninsula status quo to a unified Korean Peninsula on South Korean terms. Um, but I think China could live with a South Korea unified along those terms, right? If I mean, Korean unification is sort of this immensely consequential hypothetical. Uh, and there's lots of sort of subsidiary questions that I think affect how we assess that scenario, right? Is South Korea still allied with the United States or is a unified Korea with some 80 million people, much more favorable demographics, uh, a completely changed threat environment because South Korea, which is actually a tremendously capable military on its own, would no longer have to primarily worry about deterring a North Korea in a post-unification scenario. So how does South Korea then act in the region? Does it sort of threaten China? Does it threaten Japan? <laughs> you know, these are sort of, I think, really far-fetched questions that, um, you know, there's just several factors. I think the Chinese could ultimately live with that outcome if it did come to that. I mean, they would have to, right? I mean, um, the alternative would be risking a, a conflict with the United States by intervening in a unification scenario to stop unification where the U.S. would then back South Korea. And I, I just don't think that China has the level of national interests staked on Korean unification to do that. Taiwan is a completely different question, right? That's one of China's core mm -hmm. interests. Um, and, and China would absolutely stake a conflict with the United States if it, if it felt that uh, it was going to suffer uh, irreversible losses uh, with regard to Taiwan. But I think on the Korean Peninsula, it's a, it's a different set of considerations. Before heading further south into Asia, I thought I'd step back a little bit. Um, so you mentioned uh, the conflict in Ukraine uh, currently. Just a quick question, because I'm curious about your position uh, on, on, on the question. What what do you think, d does the US gain from uh, Russia being estranged from Europe? So is there benefit uh, to Russia and uh, Europe not playing nicely together? For example, to give some examples, uh, maybe it drives up um, liquid gas prices or, or maybe it strengthens NATO or this is along the lines I'm thinking do, do you have uh, an understanding of of uh, what America's position is uh, in this case yeah I mean so look I think in a perfect world the US would have Russia just be a responsible member of the international community uh, you know one that remains a permanent member of the UN Security Council significant in global affairs um, but unfortunately, that's just not where things have headed with Putin, uh, right? So I'm not I'm not a uh, I'm not a Russologist or a, or a, or a, or a historian of Russia by any means. Um, but my understanding from people that I respect in that field and who understand these issues quite well is that one of the fundamental causes of our predicament now is, I think you know Vladimir Putin has a long memory, um, and I think fundamentally Russia has found itself not being treated seriously by the United States and Europe. Uh, and sort of, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think, is viewed by Putin and a large portion of the Russian public as a as a national tragedy and embarrassment. Uh, and it was sort of significantly diminished Russia's prominence in global affairs. And so, you know, um, in the 1990s and the 2000s, especially the 2000s under the Bush administration, uh, the U.S. took a number of actions basically without any consideration of, of, of Russian interests, right? Um, not just withdrawing from the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which basically indicated that we no longer took Russian, um, you know, nuclear deterrence with Russia seriously, 
um, but a number of other factors, right? And so right now, I think one of the things that's happening is by creating this crisis with Ukraine um, and threatening to fundamentally transform European borders in a way that hasn't happened since the Second World War, um, Putin has very much, I think, thrust himself into a position where the U.S. is taking Russia a little bit more seriously. I mean, quite a bit more seriously. There's been this exchange of sort of letters that's happened recently between NATO and Russia that's leaked. Um, they're sort of discussing big picture questions about what is Europe, you know, what should security in Europe look like? Um, and so these are the kinds of discussions that really haven't happened um, since, you know, the Helsinki final act. And maybe you could talk about the NATO-Russia founding act in, uh, in the late 90s. Um, but so, you know, Russia, I think, has won to an extent in in that way, right? If if that is Russia's uh, um, expectation, uh, you know, I'm not going to wade into the question of is Putin going to invade Ukraine or not, because I think, um, you know, even if it is a bluff, a good bluff is always designed to be indistinguishable from a real threat. Uh, and so, what is currently manifesting around Ukraine is indistinguishable from a bluff or indistinguishable mm -hmm. from a true threat. The Russians could invade; they could back down if their interests are are assessed. Um, the the threat is very much real. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen tonight. Uh, it could not happen at all. Um, and so, you know, I think also the other thing is that the U.S. right now in Washington, uh, all of the interest is on China. Right? This Ukraine crisis is actually, I think, a tremendous. Um, yeah, I don't want to say a distraction, but I think it's a tremendous uh, inconvenience um, for, I think, American designs to focus exclusively on Asia, right? The idea was that Biden would withdraw from Afghanistan, we'd sort of pull out from Iraq and Syria, um, the Europeans would hopefully take a greater stake in managing their own affairs, Russia wouldn't do what it's doing right now, and the U.S. could sort of go all in on Asia. Um, but the thing is, the U.S. has too many interests around the world and uh, just can't avoid uh, being drawn into this. And so that's, I think, um, another factor here. But I think ideally, you know, if if we think about a post-Putin Russia, um, I think I think the U.S. goal would be to really have Russia just be another actor on the international stage. You know, maybe one we disagree with occasionally that has its own interests, but one that doesn't sort of revisit fundamental principles enshrined in the UN Charter, like the fact that national borders and national sovereignty should be respected. Um, and, you know, I'm not I'm not anticipating that we'll get there anytime soon, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Do you think America's current position as the number one you know, global cop is actually sustainable moving forward it, not with, at all. with the rise of China? Not, not at all. all. No, I mean, I think a lot of uh, a lot of U.S. national security thinking is sort of predicated on um, this very sort of exceptional experience of unipolarity that the U.S. enjoyed in the 1990s. Right. I mean, the, the level of power that the United States possessed in the international system uh, in the 1990s was really only comparable to the immediate influence the U.S. had in the aftermath of the Second World War when Europe was still recovering. All uh, right. Uh, the triumphalism that manifested in the aftermath of the Cold War, this sort of idea that the U.S. could be invincible and influence global affairs everywhere, I think has led to this position where we have a level of strategic insolvency, which by which I mean that we are writing checks to allies, partners, countries, issues, functional areas around the world that ultimately we can't cash. And I think that creates a number mm -hmm. of problems, right? I brought up this idea earlier of strategy uh, fundamentally being oriented around the notion of matching ends and means, and I would say that our ends today vastly outclass the means that we actually have available. And so there's this scrambling that happens where policy is fundamentally reaction—you uh, know, not reactionary, but reactive. Um, and this also, I think, practically has to do with a number of other factors like politics in Washington, election cycles, where, you know, 
a lot of the signaling that we hear from Biden administration officials on Ukraine is really, you know, directed towards Republicans in Congress, directed towards uh, American voters to show that, look, we're not being weak. We have sanctions, right? So foreign policy and democracies is always complicated. It's especially complicated when you're an, an, an insolvent global superpower uh, fundamentally in decline, right? I'm, I'm fundamentally bullish on the United States, right? Like I'm a naturalized American citizen. I made that decision to naturalize pretty recently. Uh, so I'm not you know, I'm not here to bet that, that the United States is going to lose the 21st century, whatever that means. But I do think that there's a an overdue correction. One of the things that I think unipolarity really bestowed on the United States was the ability to make mistakes, tremendous mistakes, and, and withstand those, right? The invasion of Iraq mm -hmm. was a colossal, colossal foreign policy error. Uh, tragic not only for Americans, but especially for Iraqis who died in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and the United States has barely faced any consequences uh, as as a result of that, right? I mean, sure, we can talk about the non-proliferation consequences of the North Korea, but really, I mean, that is that is one of the fundamental privileges of that level of power in the international system is that you can, you know, squander trillions on wars and and still basically have your society progress as if um, as if you hadn't committed a colossal error. And I think and I think those that sort of status is what we're really beginning to shed where missteps in our foreign policy are really going to have much more significant consequence. Other powers are going to become more prominent in the international system. And so figuring out how to cope with that uh, is something that, you know, there's a lot of thinking being done on that uh, in, in think tanks and, and academia. But I think within government, um, there's still a very, very deeply ingrained reluctance to drop this idea that America can have expansive, uh, indispensable interests everywhere. Uh, and I think that needs to change. What role does... Uh, so so America in the last century had these weapon systems, these super platforms like carriers and submarines. To what extent uh, are these sort of giving way to newer technologies like um, drones and hypersonic missiles and artificial intelligence and you know these these new weapons platforms that are coming into play what what role do these play in sort of the the, the fall off of american power yeah um i mean modern warfare is fundamentally um fundamentally transformed uh right so i think um the kinds of military campaigns that we saw during Desert Storm in the early 1990s or even the U.S. invasion of Iraq um, basically are a thing of the past at this point. Um, you know, there was a really excellent uh, special issue of The Economist recently that does a very good high-level overview of what I'm about to describe. But basically, uh, you know, it's not just AI, it's not just strike systems like hypersonic weapons, uh, which actually, you know, can be slower than ballistic missiles uh, in, in certain circumstances. But the fundamental revolution is really in... Um, the, you know, I would say the sensor revolution. I mean, we just have uh, smaller countries and big countries alike just have a lot more information available to them um, that can be analyzed and used in real time to inform military planning. Um, and so this doesn't create a perfect decision making environment, but I think this introduces a dynamic where the pace of warfare uh, occurs fundamentally on much, much faster timelines. Uh, and so we've never seen a sort of modern war of the scale that I'm about to describe. But so one of my major projects right now is looking at this issue of missile proliferation uh, in the Asia Pacific region, where all these countries are developing uh, a number of strike systems, ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, hypersonic systems um, that in a conflict would deploy very quickly and deploy at a number of targets to gain maximum advantage very early on. 
And so, you know, one of the cases where we have seen some of this play out recently is sort of the conflict that played out between Armenia and Azerbaijan in mm-hmm. 2020 in Nagorno-Karabakh. I'm, I'm sure not a lot of your listeners really paid attention to that because Nagorno-Karabakh, frankly, isn't on the front pages. You'd be surprised. I have a lot of Armenian listeners. Oh, okay. There you go. So then then perhaps they, uh, they, they are all too well acquainted with uh, the tragedy of that conflict. Um, but the dynamics that we saw in that conflict, right? I mean, uh, loitering munitions, these sort of basically, you know, autonomous cruise missiles that linger for a very long time over a battlefield and then destroy their targets without without any warning, high altitude drones and strike systems um, in, in a great power conflict, you know, multiply that with um, impressive and persistent space-based intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, um, AI conducting real-time analysis of optical imagery to, to detect and analyze targets in a way that was never possible before. Um, it's just something that I think human beings fundamentally, right? Military planners are still fundamentally human beings. Pol- politicians making decisions to escalate or not in a conflict are human beings. It's just outpacing our ability to really understand that. So, you know, there's this there's this old notion that, you know, Clausewitz talked about uh, in, in the Prussian times of, uh, you know, the fog of war. And... Um, the the pace of modern conflict, I think, intensifies this in a way that really, once a conflict gets started, escalation pathways are just immense, right? I mean, there's just there's just too many un- unintended consequences here that can play out. And so that's something I'm trying to think about and sort of hopefully systemize in a way that makes sense to policymakers and to defense planners so that, you know, we don't just sleepwalk into this um, 21st century conflict where... Uh, you know, before you know it, nuclear weapons are being deliberately used because the possibility of uh, conventional defeat is so great, right? Um, and so, you know, you brought up aircraft carriers, surface ships. Uh, you know, submarines, I think, are, are you know still have a pretty important role to play because um, surveillance under the uh, under the waves is still quite difficult. Uh, you know, even uh, synthetic aperture radar satellites and and other advanced space-based sensors can't quite pierce the oceans just yet. Uh, but aircraft carriers, you know. Aircraft carriers are commonly described as sort of obsolete. I think the U.S. Navy would sort of reject that characterization. Yes, U.S. carriers would be obsolete if you sailed them into the Taiwan Strait, where they would immediately get blown up by anti-ship missiles. China even has longer-range anti-ship missiles. Um, But, you know, despite all the headlines about Chinese carrier killer missiles, I do want to emphasize that the task of using especially a conventional warhead to strike a moving target like an aircraft carrier is, is pretty difficult. And we actually haven't seen conclusively that China has demonstrated that capability. There's a lot of headlines that will lead you to believe that. But basically, the concept of operations now for the United States is to keep its carriers in sort of a safe zone, right? So um, in in the jargon of military strategy, uh, there's this acronym that's bandied about at the Pentagon, A2AD, anti-access, that's the A2, area denial. Um, so using anti-access capabilities, long-range missiles backed up by robust strike systems and sensors to basically uh, create a, a a bubble within which um, your surface ships and aircraft will be very vulnerable to, disrupt, uh, to destruction. And at the vast geographic distances we're talking about in the Pacific, uh, this is very difficult to do with practice. Um, and so, you know, keeping your carriers far away and using sort of long endurance uh, drones, teaming up with stealth mm-hmm. aircraft to sort of pierce that bubble, conduct limited strikes and back off, using long-range strike systems to pierce that bubble, ballistic missiles, hypersonic weapons. These are some of the very sort of voguish trends at the Pentagon. Um, but really, you know, it's that it's that old um, it's that old Cold War era dynamic where 
you know, we are building capabilities and then figuring out how we're going to really use them in practice, where we're going to put them, and what the implications of these new, new capabilities are for escalation and conflict. So it's not tremendously encouraging from where I'm sitting, um, but, you know, my hope is that the next 10 to 15 years, um, you know, hopefully we don't end up in a major conflict where we haven't fully th uh, thought through these issues. I suppose if carriers really were obsolete, then China wouldn't be building them right now. On 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 the topic of drones, well, actually, I mean, if I can just jump in on that, right? So it's interesting with carriers because um, there's other considerations, right? It's not just what you know. Militaries mostly exist in peacetime. That's the thing. Most of the time that a military exists is existing in peacetime, and so this is why you know when people criticize the U.S. defense budget, it's sort of you know, I, I mean, I'm critical of U.S. defense spending. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, a spending hawk by any means saying that we should pour more money into the military. Um, but it says, you know, militaries do so many things, right? Humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. The U.S. military assists with typhoons, earthquakes, volcano eruptions in Tonga and so forth. Um, and so m militaries do all of these things. COVID relief and infrastructure, too. There's a lot of roles to play there. Um, and uh, carriers are very good in peacetime. I mean, they're this tremendous show of American presence, right? I mean, if a, if a major humanitarian crisis happens and an aircraft carrier shows up with food and medicine, I mean, that has diplomatic and soft power value. And for China, it's very much a similar consideration, right? China is building carriers not because they are perceived to hold tremendous value in a conflict, but because it's what big countries do. It's what superpowers do. It's, it's, it's a way to demonstrate your presence. And so, you know, there's all of these decision-making contours that, that go into military spending and defense policy. Uh, and I'm, I'm not implying for a second that this should lead us to sort of sleepwalk into massive levels of spending by any means. Um, but, but this idea that we exclusively have militaries for times of conflict um, just hasn't been true uh, in practice. And of course, this leads to another problem, which is that because we're so comfortable with spending in peacetime, and because especially in the United States, you have pork barrel politics and you have, uh, you know, defense contractors that are very good at just, you know, milking Congress for all they're worth. Uh, you end up with a bunch of capabilities that, you know, aren't going to be very useful in conflict. And this is, you know, uh, another good example of this is Taiwan, right? There's this huge sort of streak of criticism in the United States that the Taiwanese simply aren't spending the kind of money that they need to be on the kinds of systems that would actually help them resist for the longest possible duration an invasion by the quantitatively and qualitatively superior People's Liberation Army. But, you know, like things like F-16s, right? F-16s would be blown up on their airfields before they would ever be able to take off in a conflict. But those same Taiwanese F-16s are now deploying almost every other week to repel Chinese aircraft from testing Taiwan's air defense identification zone. So it's that sort of peacetime mm -hmm. versus wartime distinction. And if you're a Taiwanese president, you can't just ignore the peacetime utility of these systems. And so Taiwan is now trying to sort of do both things at once, but it's, it's, it's not an easy problem. Defense policy has, has many contours. Do you think... Within our lifetimes, we will see artificial intelligence in charge of the kill switch, or do you think we'll see wars that are completely drone-based? Yeah, so, you know, it depends on if you're talking about general artificial intelligence or if you're talking about, you know, AI is this term that's used by different people to mean different things, right? A lot of people will just use basic statistics uh, to mean AI. Um, and, you know, that kind of AI is already implemented into early warning systems where, you know, computers will be able to conduct analysis to determine false positive signals from from false negatives and and, and sort of hopefully avert um, either of those outcomes, uh, you know, the type one, type two error problem. But then there's sort of the general AI problem of, you know, where you have a Skynet style system that's deciding on its own uh, who and what to strike. And uh, and I think we're, we're, we're pretty far off from that. I think there's a very 
persistent level of discomfort. And, you know, it's actually, uh, you know, I've been a part of a few um, very interesting uh, war games and simulations uh, with um, former and current U.S. military and officials on this kind of stuff. And I think one of the reasons that this isn't going to happen doesn't have anything to do with morality or ethics. It's really about human ego. I mean, in, in each of these simulations and exercises, when, you know, a hypothetical AI system provided any input on a strategic scenario or a crisis or a tactical predicament, uh, human decision makers basically uh, trusted their own reasoning much more than that of the AI system, right? So it's it's sort of because we imagine that our human ingenuity is always going to be fundamentally more reliable than any any computer that we as humans might be able to engineer. Uh, and so I've wondered about the implications of that, because does that mean that, you know, a president that receives warning from a early warning system in the future that's deemed very sophisticated that, you know, Russia has launched a nuclear attack against the United States, is that president going to take that as a source of absolute truth? Or would that president maybe interpret that signal differently if it were to come from a trusted advisor, for instance? So a lot of this gets into human psychology and how we sort of trust um, systems that we can't fully understand. I think humans are fundamentally uncomfortable with that. Although, you know, I mean, maybe this changes over time. Maybe as, you know, technologies like self-driving cars and AI personal assistants like, you know, Siri mm -hmm. and so forth um, manifests everywhere. Um, the relationship between how we interact with machines uh, is is um, is likely to change in ways that could reverberate here. Um, but more generally, I think, you know, this is not something that I presume will become a trend. Again, to go back to Nagorno-Karabakh, you know, there were sort of concerns that um, some of the Turkish drones that were being used in that conflict were um, conducting an uncomfortably high degree of autonomous uh, analysis before sort of human operators would authorize the strikes. And so there are these difficult ethical questions that come into that. But but there's, there's a very active field of research. Um, there are sort of lawyers and ethicists that spend a lot of time working on the issue of um, lethal autonomous weapons. Um, the United Nations is, is seized of this issue as well. Um, and, and generally right now, the trend is not against wide-scale deployment of this. The thing that I sort of worry about and that I've spoken uh, about on other episodes of the podcast is a situation where you just get such an advantage by giving control over to the artificial, whatever you mean by artificial intelligence, you know, you can shoot that missile this much faster, you can target and so forth. And that's the sort of, um, to use your language, where you sleepwalk into a position where now you hand over control. Um, yeah. That, that's the... I think I think I think I think with AI, I think AI is going to become increasingly more important in uh, analysis uh, and reconnaissance. And so there's just some tasks that computers, uh, you know, a, a computer does very well with a standardized set of inputs uh, as, as data, right? Be that optical images, numbers, what have you, telemetry signals, uh, other kinds of signals, intercepts, uh, and so creating that fire hose is, I think, something the U.S. especially is very interested in. And so in a future conflict, you know, that that problem I highlighted of conflicts playing out at paces that just simply aren't um, feasible for human minds to cope with in any kind of strategic decision-making sense, uh, the hope is that AI can make that a little bit more manageable. And it, and it really depends on how that plays out in practice. I have a lot of sort of misgivings about um, thinking that that makes it okay for us to then sleepwalk into those conflicts because we're better equipped to manage those. Um, and I, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of uh, assumptions that go into that, that, uh, might deserve, um, serious rethinking. Hmm. I want to, um, just cause we have to wrap up pretty soon. So I want to focus on just, uh, the South China sea towards the end. Um, so just a very basic question. Um, why is the nine dash line 
so important for China? What, what, why, why is this important for China in the region, but also more generally in terms of its national strategy? So, I mean, the way it's presented is, you know, the Nine Dash Line is sort of presented as a historical truth uh, that for eons, Chinese, traditional Chinese fishermen have been exploiting these waters. And so this is the basis for Chinese sovereignty. It has no basis in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which China has signed and ratified. Um, but the other reason is, you know, more practical and more recent, which is that surveys in the mid 20th century turned up hydrocarbon or evidence of potential hydrocarbon re reserves and the fidelity of those assessments has grown. And so that, again, is a practical consideration that there's these hydrocarbons, these resources that's of tremendous value. Uh, the other issue actually has to do with nuclear deterrence, which is that the South China Sea is where China bases its ballistic missile submarines. Uh, so China isn't blessed with the kind of geography that the United States enjoys, where we have sort of unbridled access to two oceans, where we can persistently at all times have multiple ballistic missile submarines out there, which means that if anybody were to ever nuke us, um, we would, without doubt, without any doubt, have the ability to retaliate, right? And, that, and, that's, a, and that's very stabilizing. It makes us sleep pretty well at night. China doesn't have that same assurance because their nuclear forces are much smaller, and so they have six ballistic missile submarines. They don't do what is known as continuous at-sea deterrence, which is what the U.S. and the U.K. and France do. Um, so they basically keep them in port, and they flush them out into the South China Sea. And hopefully, you know, they would get them out into the Western Pacific because China's submarine-launched ballistic missiles are, frankly speaking, not very good and, and don't have the range to range the United States from the South China Sea. But also, that means that they need the South China Sea to be a bastion, which is what that strategy of submarine basing is called. You want a bastion where you know, enemy submarines and surface ships and helicopters and aircraft aren't able to freely roam. And so I think this notion of building artificial islands in the South China Sea, military outposts, putting anti-aircraft systems there, over-the-horizon radars, and so forth, a lot of that has to do with building a better bastion and giving China a little bit more of, of that comfort. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm describing, I'm talking about the South China Sea, of course, in a U.S.-China context, but you know, the other factor is that you have these other territorial claimants, Vietnam, the Philippines, Brunei, Malaysia, and Indonesia, which is a maritime claimant, but not a territorial claimant across the Nine Dash Line. Um, and so all of these states have their subsidiary interests. And so it's it's it, it, it's a complex issue, um, again, like, like so many things. And uh, unfortunately, you know, China, by just simply ignoring international law in this area, has set itself up pretty well, like the fait accompli. International politics, mm -hmm. I think, is very much manifested in the South China Sea, where facts have simply changed on the ground and on the water. See, that's what I was curious to ask, whether China really just has to wait, you know, as it becomes more powerful and it's more able to assert itself. Do you think it's going to be able to just claim that this is, you know, this is our territory? This is the way it is now. Um, there's no one who can actually say no. Uh, is that how you think things will unfold in the future? Um, I mean, I hope not, right? I mean, the basis for the international system that we have is that might does not make right, right? So international law is basically a tool that um, evens out differences between levels of state power, right? So we don't we don't live in this sort of Hobbesian state of nature, uh, right? The North Korean view of international politics is not one that the United States shares, right? We think that rules matter. Um, unfortunately, you know, we ourselves have flouted the rules. We ignore international court rulings when we don't like them. We're not a member of the Rome Statute or the International Criminal Court. Uh, we can talk about the Trump administration's withdrawal from treaties. Um, and, you know, so there is a tremendous amount of American hypocrisy. You know, I'm not going to be that, the, you know, the think tanker in Washington who pretends that there's this pristine rules-based order that only China and Russia 
uh, transgress against. And again, of course, I mean, U.S. officials would reject that characterization because, you know, the view in Washington is that we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. And so, you know, they need to stop being bad guys. Um, but so China is now becoming more powerful. I mean, they're a country of 1.4 billion people and their power is rising to a level commensurate with their population. And so they sort of see a return to an equilibrium in global affairs after this sort of aberrant period since um, the end of the Qing dynasty. Uh, that sort of, you know, re I mean, the Qing dynasty overall was sort of correlated with the decline of China as an imperial power uh, more generally as uh, as the Europeans went in and the opium wars happened in the uh, in the mid uh, in the mid 1800s. But um, the notion is that, look, China is going to become more powerful. We're going to become a much more significant source of ballast to the international system. And we're going to, you know, cut ourselves a f few big pieces of cake as we sort of settle into this new role. And so that obviously pushes back pretty significantly against this U.S. vision where, you know, there is a rules-based order and sure, we might not follow it, but China absolutely needs to follow these rules. And so um, this is, you know, one of the fundamental tensions that's uh, that's leading to um, increased friction, uh, increased uh, geopolitical rifts between the two countries. Um, and look, I'm not implying that, you know, there's a there's a level of equivalency between the U.S. sort of sometimes conveniently ignoring aspects of the rules based order and what China's doing. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think, you know, what's happening in Xinjiang is absolutely, you know, a genocide that that I think China is hoping that its size and status in the international system will simply shield it from any criticism, which I think sadly is playing out. Right. Even, you know. This is a, um, you know, the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities are being brutally repressed, but the Organization of Islamic States, for instance, is very, very reluctant to criticize China for economic considerations and so forth. Um, and so one of the fundamental questions as we sort of navigate the rise of China is what exactly does power in practical terms get you in the international system in the 21st century? You know, is this sort of rules-based order that the U.S. and the West think uh, you know, was brought into existence after the Second World War and sort of um, further bolstered after the end of the Cold War, able to withstand that? Um, and I think the answer is is very much uh, an open question. Hmm. It is, I'm curious, it's curious that you mentioned uh, criticism towards China as it as it grows, because my view, the, the way I understood things was that as China became more powerful and it took you know, more center stage, that it would be more open to criticism in the sense that, you know, everyone, everyone criticizes the United States quite, quite often, right? It's, you often hear people in Europe criticizing the uh, United States and their policy. So I thought that one of the downsides to China becoming more prominent on the world stage would be that they actually have to now take criticism uh, in, in a similar way to the States. You don't think that's going to be the case? So I don't. And I think, um, you know, part of that, I think, has fundamentally to do with how uh, open societies and, demo uh, and democracies um, contend with criticism internationally, right? Uh, it's not just the United States, Western European countries, um, uh, Israel, you know, all face tremendous criticism on the international stage. Uh, you know, uh, and I think there's important differences in how each each of those three categories react. Um, I think with China, first of all, I mean, internally in China, within the Communist Party of China, there isn't a culture of open debate and criticism, right? Uh, the Politburo doesn't get together and, you know, Xi Jinping spitballs an idea and, uh, you know, other members of the Politburo Standing Committee don't sort of second guess him necessarily, especially if they want to sort of, you know, 
uh, stay out of um, Xi's anti-corruption campaign, which, uh, you know, has really been used to quash his rivals. And so when you have that kind of political culture where criticism just isn't part of it, um, I don't think that really translates into a foreign policy where, you know, you're you're open to this idea of being criticized. I mean, in, in Chinese writings on foreign policy, and I mean official writings, white papers, you know, this op- uh, this notion of big countries and small countries is very prevalent, that big countries have certain mm-hmm. privileges that small countries simply have to tolerate. You know, and it's a very old idea in international politics, you know, going back to Thucydides, million dialogue of the Spartans and the Athenians, uh, you know, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. Um, and uh, I think that sort of plays into how China is in practice handling criticism, because I think, you know, one of the things that has happened recently is as China under Xi Jinping has become more forceful in the pursuit of its own interests internally and externally, uh, it has led to more criticism, right? Um, when, uh, you know, the general manager of the Houston Rockets declared his support for the um, protesters in Hong Kong um, and was silenced. I mean, that really, I think, was a wake up call for a lot of people. Right. I mean, people who I know who don't think, you know, don't work in international affairs or spend any time thinking about geopolitics were suddenly, you know, wondering, you know, why is why does the you know, why do the preferences of the Chinese Communist Party affect speech considerations by American citizens on American soil. Mm. And so, you know, that's leading to, you know, Pixar movies with maps of Asia depicting the nine dash line. It's 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 sort of, you know, the Winter Olympics, I think, have also put mm. this into focus um, that as China grows, uh, you know, Hollywood movies are, are taking this into consideration. Top Gun 2 is censoring Taiwanese flags. Uh, and so these frictions between sort of open societies and closed societies, I think, will continue to play out. Um, but broadly speaking, I think we just see no signs that that uh, political culture in China is is ever going to get to a place where the ability to withstand criticism uh, is is ever going to become um, a strong suit. I just don't think that's in the cards. You often hear about uh, people talking about the century of humiliation. In China itself, do people talk about this? And is this sort of uh, a meme that spreads throughout the population? If, if so, is it, should the West be in some sense worried about uh, China's ascendancy if this is, you know, built into the culture? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I mean, I don't want to generalize for the views of 1.4 billion people, but I think it's absolutely an important part. <laughs> Fair enough. It's an important part of the Communist Party's, um, you know, national mythology. Um, and, you know, it's it's that notion of, uh, you know, mean reversion or return to equilibrium in international politics that China sees, Right. I mean, and look, I mean, strictly, if we sort of just view the international system as a collection of 196 countries with differing populations, and we give no attention to the moral or political character of those countries, you know, imagine we're aliens just viewing the earth and we look at these countries, we see one country with 1.4 billion people and a large chunk of territory, we naturally assume that that country is going to be the most powerful in the international system, right? That's not the case mm-hmm. uh, as earth exists. Um, but I think Chinese leaders on some level, you know, share that view that, you know, China is the center of Asia, which is the world's, um, it is the, you know, half the world population lives there. It's the economic heart of human activity on earth today and certainly into the future. Um, And that, you know, that China deserves to sort of assume its natural position, that there's this natural order that should exist in the international system that's sort of been offset by, um, you know, centuries of European colonialism, um, the Industrial Mm -hmm. Revolution sort of manifesting um, a very asymmetric distribution of technological advantage, and all of that is being rectified now. And so that's kind of the Chinese, I think, Communist Party view uh, of this. And that's that's fundamentally dangerous, right? Because the U.S. rejects that, and any time you've had sort of 
a systematic disagreement on that level uh, between major superpowers, one status quo power and one rising power, the conditions for conflict are pretty ripe. And so that's, I think, one of the fundamental questions that we're, you know, we're going to be um, witnessing the answers sort of play out to uh, in, in the coming decades. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's other reasons to be, you know, I'm, not, I'm also not trying to indicate that China is 12 feet tall or this, you know, you know, that China is going to take over the world by any means. I mean, there's lots of weaknesses in China. I think their political system is fundamentally weak. I think one of the things that keeps Xi Jinping and um, members of the Politburo up at night is the story of how the Soviet Union collapsed. And so avoiding those mistakes, right? I mean, I talked, I talked about Xinjiang. I mean, she has given speeches where he basically cites the failures of Soviet ethnic policy, right? The Soviets had a policy of allowing all of the ethnic nationalities of the Soviet Union to enjoy differing levels of autonomy. I mean, Stalin wasn't the bright spot there, but I mean, you know, later on. And, and Xi's analysis was that, look, I mean, Brezhnev, Andropov, Gorbachev, all of these guys just didn't know how to manage internal security affairs, and we're not going to make those mistakes. And so China perceives a number of weaknesses, right? The one-child policy and now trying to overcorrect for it, this massive systematic demographic weakness that China has. Um, there's a lot of insecurity there. So it's not that, you know, we should be worried about China because China is going to become strong and act out of strength. It's also we need to worry about what China might do out of perceptions of weakness and a chronic sense of insecurity. Um, I think one of the biggest problems is that Chinese leaders fundamentally still believe that the U.S. rejects the legitimacy of their political system and seeks to change their regime. And right, it's that it's that same problem that the North Koreans worry about that we don't fundamentally see the Communist Party of China as as a legitimate um, as the legitimate government of China. And and if and if that isn't an assumption of American policy, and you know, depending on who you ask in Washington, you're going to get different answers to that. Um, that doesn't really create a basis for a, a stable relationship and especially one that can avert conflict. To finish up, to wrap up, I thought I'd just close off with uh, a very um, quick overview because I realize you've only got a couple of minutes. What do you think the American policy moving forward towards the future should be towards China? Like if you, if you, if you were going to develop a policy to lead towards a more peaceful uh, existence, knowing, of course, we also have these big shifts in technology, big economic shifts and this rise of China, what would the policy look like if, if you had your if you had your way? That's a big question. I mean, I mean, luckily, I'm not a, I don't primarily spend my time working on U.S.-China relations. Um, I mean, look, you know, I think the first thing to say here is, you know, like I said, I'm a naturalized American, fundamentally believe in the advantages of open societies and democracies. Um, you know, I would much rather, you know, live in a world where the United States is preeminent. Um, so I, you know, I guess I'm a very Washington in that sense. Um, but I'm also interested in averting conflict with China. Um, I, th I, think, I think one of the major issues that makes this a very difficult problem, uh, and I think this is one that a lot of people who do in good faith want to avoid China are wrangling with in Washington, is how do you deal with a leader like Xi Jinping, um, who is fundamentally different from his predecessors, uh, fundamentally different from Hu Jintao, Jiang Zemin, Deng Xiaoping, much closer to Mao Zedong and his understanding of the international system and, and China's role and, and China's internal system. Um, Engagement is sort of now this toxic word in Washington where, you know, we we brought China into, you know, we accommodated China into the international system that we built. And in that process, we set up China to displace us. Uh, I think that narrative is maybe a little bit oversimplistic, but I think it also does have some truth to it, which was that the U.S., you know, U.S. officials during the Bush administration, the Clinton administration had these rosy assumptions about 
how accommodation and sort of showing China the benefits of globalization would manifest in changes internally in China, that China would become this market economy. And sure, maybe they remain the People's Republic of China on paper, but, you know, become a much better environment for Western companies to do business in and so forth. But what we've had in reality is, you know, Hong Kong becoming absolutely quashed as a global financial center, um, you know, Disney Pixar movies being censored and, uh, you know, Star Wars being um you know, subject to the whims of the Communist Party. So it's it's really, I mean, engagement is toxic for those reasons. But I mean, I think fundamentally, if you if you want to avoid crisis with this country of 1.4 billion people that has nuclear weapons and massive military capability and these revisionist ob- objectives, you need to negotiate with China. And I, and I don't mean that you need to accommodate China or you need to sort of appease China, but you need to do what we did with the Soviet Union, right? You need to manage that competitive relationship. And, you know, this has been getting more lip service under the Biden administration. We've heard about managed competition, responsible competition. But in practice, I think that's going to require bringing China into some very difficult discussions on things like arms control, strategic stability, managing military disputes, um, and also revisiting, I think, issues of just Asia's security architecture in the same sense that we did with the Soviet Union with the Helsinki Final Act, where we included all of the states in Europe. And we sort of reached this understanding about the role of these superpowers in regional security. And of course, you know, it's not just the U.S. and China. Asia, like I said, is the center. Asia is the center of the world and it will be the center of the world for the future. Right. It's 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 uh, it's the economic heart of the world. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, the, the demand signals that are coming out from Asia from around the region are fundamentally economic. I mean, uh, smaller Asian countries, especially countries in Southeast Asia, um, even U.S. allies. I mean, you know, U.S. allies are more concerned about China than they have been in the past. Even partners like India are more concerned. But I mean, all of these countries want a peaceful environment in which to develop their economies and pursue prosperity. And so it's not just, you know, aircraft carriers and missiles and deterrence that, that they want to see out of the United States, but they want to see some kind of forward-thinking economic vision. And, you know, once upon a time, this was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And of course, that that is now long dead. It just passed its five-year anniversary since uh, Donald Trump pulled out. Um, but I think that's another question is, is the U.S. going to offer an affirmative economic vision to this region, right? Again, I mean, let me just let me just close with this thought on strategy again, right? I mean, throughout this discussion, I've talked about strategy as the, you know, platonic strategy is when ends and means match. And I think if you asked American officials to define their ends right now, our ends are defined in pretty negative terms. We know what we don't want to see. We don't want to see an Asia dominated by China. That just doesn't sell in Asia, right? I think I think the region is looking for some kind of affirmative vision of what America can really offer. And I think once upon a time, the U.S. did this. The U.S. did this in Europe in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, and I think there was potential to do this. Uh, you know, I, I supported the TPP, uh, you know, not because I'm some kind of protection, um, you know, um, free trader who wants to take jobs away from hardworking Americans, but because, you know, I think it had sort of net positive benefits on countries like Vietnam who would have seen huge benefits and, you know, it would have lifted quite a few people out of poverty, had good standards and so forth. But for reasons of domestic politics in the United States, um, there's no appetite for um, moving away from protectionist policies, right? You know, Joe Biden has to think about the 2024 election. It'd be a pretty good way to lose that election if he were to come out in favor of a new trade agreement in Asia. That would be, I mean, catnip for uh, for Donald Trump uh, to, uh, you know, campaign on. So uh, it's it's complicated. But, uh, you know, I just I, I just think that, you know, in terms of coming up with a strategy for dealing with China, um, you, you really have to take a more holistic look at uh, at what's necessary in Asia. Escaped Sapiens.